0: Leonard Dover couldn't sleep that night. As he tossed on his bed, he tried to banish from his mind an urgent appeal he had heard. A slave from the West Indies had come and had asked and begged that someone should come to his island and bring the knowledge of Christ to a people that were living in darkness and in pity. Leonard was only 18 years old. He was a Moravian living in the colony of Herrenhut, Germany, which was led by Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Leonard began to doubt his abilities to make any impact upon that pitiful situation. And he understood also that anyone who wished to win a hearing among the slaves in the West Indies would have to sell himself as a slave and share their suffering. And that thought terrified him. How could he endure the suffering? He could hear in his mind the merciless crack of the slave owner's whip, the pitiful cries of men and women as they stumbled and fell under its lashes. He anticipated the toil and the tropical heat of the sugar plantations, the filthy conditions, and of course, the humility and shame of slavery. He thought the cost was too high, but then he remembered... If his Savior had bowed before the lash of a Roman wit for the sake of sinners, could he not at least begin to entertain the thought of being a bondslave slave of such a master to win the West Indian slaves to Christ? As he went to bed that evening, he couldn't sleep. Those thoughts captivated his mind and at last the night ended and he got up and he did his potter's work among the Harrenhut community. And as soon as he was finished, he looked for his friend Tobias the Pole. He asked them to take a walk in the woods together, and as they walked together in the woods, Leonard began to share his heart and his burden. And to his astonishment, he found that Tobias had, had been wrestling with, his cell, with the same burden. And he had been up all night in anxiety. And together, the two young men knelt in the woods. They surrendered their lives for the Lord's service. And they told themselves they would do whatever was necessary for the cost of making disciples for the kingdom of God in the West Indies. They told their leaders, and they experienced some pushback, some skepticism. A year passed, and eventually the community leaders decided that not Tobias, but another older man, David Nietzsche, would go with Leonard Dober. And so the two men set off on foot for Copenhagen to find a ship that was bound for the West Indies. Again, as they shared their missions in Copenhagen, Denmark mockery and question marks were all over them from all the people they shared their story with. Could a white man even be accepted as a slave? What would they do when they got there? And they began to doubt, but at last, there was a boat to the Virgin Islands at St. Thomas. And Leonard and Nichman went on the journey. For nine weeks, they were tossed about on a stormy ocean. And finally, they reached the green hills of St. Thomas. Of course, St. Thomas then looked much different than it was today as a tourist area. But they knew that God would not fail them. And that event... God didn't require them to become slaves. In fact, their offer of slaves was rejected, but He did require them to live among the slaves as slaves. And they lived in a little mud hut among the slaves and on the plantation. And for three months, they worked together until Nitschman assured himself that his companion had settled in the work. And Nitschman sailed back to Europe, leaving Leonard to labor alone. You would think at the results of this cost of Leonard giving his life among these slaves that there would be dramatic results. But it didn't happen like that. But it did happen gradually. The people began to love and trust this young man who would willingly have embraced slavery so they become free men in Christ. And slowly as he shared the truths of God's liberating grace in Christ, the gospel of God's pity and grace the family of the slave who originally appealed for help became the first to be touched by the gospel. Leonard Dober labored there for four years. And as he had headed back four years later, he saw the early converts among the slaves of this amazing work of God, which expanded eventually to 13,000 new believers in the West Indian Islands before any other missionary society had reached those distant shores across the Atlantic. How could a man like Leonard Dover give his life and live in those conditions to labor and those kinds of, uh, uh, of sacrifices and, and to give up what he had to do that? And the answer is because he understood the cross and the commission that Paul did in our passage in 1 Corinthians 9. That's a task of making disciples with God's grace for the kingdom of God, is worth giving up all things. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 is set between chapter 8 and chapter 10. And it's a section here where Paul is told those who were puffed up with pride and understood their liberty in Christ, but were abusing it and flaunting it among the weaker believers to give up what they had so they could serve the greater cause of Christ and win those for the Gospel. We need to remind ourselves in this book of the Corinthian priorities. They had all along had this issue of pride and selfishness that was, was, was being masqueraded among the church. And in and, and chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul says that some members of Chloe's household had told them about their quarrels. And in chapter 3, he said, you're still not mature. You're jealous of one another. You quarrel one another. You're controlled by your sinful nature. You're living like people of the world. One of you says, I'm a follower of Paul. Another says, I'm a follower of Apollos." You're living just like the people of the world. You're proud at the expense of others. And in chapter 5, their selfishness showed up again with them wanting to do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies. In chapter 5, he says, I can hardly believe the report I've heard about you. The sexual immorality going on in the church. Something even pagans won't do. A man in your church is living in sin with a stepmother. They were tolerant of what other church members chose to do in sin. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, it's your responsibility to judge those inside the church you are sitting. God will judge the unbelievers... But you must remove the evil person from among you. And they were bragging about it. He says in chapter five verse six, "You're boasting about this is terrible. Your sin is like a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven that spreads through the whole batch of dough and get rid of the old yeast and remove this wicked person from among you. They were tolerant of sin. And then in chapter seven, they were worrying about trying to change their circumstances. They were discontented. Their marriages and their statuses of life. Paul tells them in chapter 7, 29 and 30, this world as we know it will soon pass away. And Paul says, be free from the worries of this life by setting your mind on God's purpose in your circumstances. Be more worried about using your circumstances for the glory of God. They were also abusing everything they were free to do in chapter 8 through 10 and flaunting it. They claimed to know all the answers, but Paul says you really don't know that much in chapter 8 verse 3. You're really not loving God, you're really not loving people in chapter 8. Oh sure, you have some knowledge, and sure, you can eat this meat, but you're destroying your brother. And in chapter 8, verse 9, he said, you must be careful so your freedom doesn't cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. And so that leads us to our text in chapter 9, where Paul will say, I have a case for exercising my rights, but I'm going to set them aside for the sake of the gospel. He's going to unpack his reasons for why he has certain rights, then he's going to lay out how he has set aside those particular rights, and then he's going to say, "Run to win for the sake of making disciples, for the sake of saving some, for the sake of winning people to Christ, seeing sinners change to the glory of Christ's kingdom." So chapter one, or chapter nine verses one through 14, Paul lays out the case for his rights, and his first reason is he's an apostle. He's an apostle. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle to others that doubtless I am to you for the seal or proof of my apostleship, are you in the Lord? Paul says, "I'm free as anyone else. I'm free as any other apostle. I've seen Jesus Christ with my own eyes. They're on the road to Damascus. It was a validation of his, of his uh, uh, evidence, of his apostleship. And he said, it's because of my work as an apostle among you that you belong to the Lord in the first place. Others might not say I'm an apostle, Paul says in verse 2, but I am to you and you're my proof that I'm the Lord's apostle. So Paul says, I have, I have a, a, a clear cut ironclad case to exercise my rights as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says in verses uh, 3 through 13 that I should be supported. I should be supported. He says to those who question his authority, don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? God's commands to God's people was to take care of God's workers. Don't we have the right, Paul said, to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do as Peter does? And by implication, have that wife supported as she would travel with the apostles, apparently Peter and James. Paul says it in verse 6, it's only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves. The other apostles are being supported by the churches. And he says this isn't how it works in the real world. He said in verse 7, what soldier has to pay his own expenses? If you're employed as a soldier for your government, your government's going to take care of you. What farmer plants a vineyard and he doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk or participate in some of the benefits of the flock? Paul says. This isn't just a principle that uh, uh, lies in in, in, the, in the world here. Uh, even even Moses' loss is the same thing in verses eight and nine, and he quotes Deuteronomy twenty five four that you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. That as they would, as they would uh, harness that ox to the, to the grindstone and, 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 and it would turn and it would, and it would uh, separate the, the, the barley from the husk here, they weren't allowed to put the muzzle on the ox so that it could eat what it was treading. Paul says, was God only thinking about oxen when he said that? Is God only concern for animals? No, He's actually talking about us in verse 10. It was written for us, so the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain should share in the harvest. It's just normal. It's It's just expected. Paul says this in verse 11, we have planted in the vineyard of the Lord. We have planted in the farm of God. We have planted spiritual seed among you. Shouldn't we not have a harvest then of our own physical needs being taken care of? How about food and drink at the very least? You support others who preach to you, Apollos and Peter and others. We've invested even more into you. Shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? And then Paul says this in verse 13, that we haven't used this right. He said we would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news of Jesus Christ. Brings out in verse 13 again, something that the Jews and even the pagan temples would have an understanding of. Those who worked in the temples, the Jewish temple or the pagan temple, they would be able to share uh, meals from the offerings of animals and meat that were brought to the temple. Those who served at the altar were allowed to, to participate in some of the meat that was sacrificed. And verse 13. And then Paul says this in Verse 14. Even so, has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. The Lord has ordered that those who preach the gospel should be supported by those who benefit from the gospel. We see this laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Though those that 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 uh uh, uh, rule well and and labor in the ministry of the word should be supported and worthy of double honor. We see this in Galatians chapter six that those who 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 are taught should be uh, 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 supported. Those who uh, who who have been taught should should share what they have with those who are the teachers. So Paul lays out a case for 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 his rights. He's an apostle. He should be supported. But what's the point of this ministry here for us today? It's very clear that. The point of verses 1-14 through 14 is that we must support gospel ministry wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Listen, God puts full support behind the most important work in the world. Full permission. A blank check to get the job done. Some of you have grown up in the Great Depression. Or those of you who read the history books are familiar with the Great Depression. And then what got us out of the Great Depression uh, was, was when World War II came. And the factories started cranking out. But what was important was that economy uh, there that was in such dire straits and then began to be stimulated by World War II uh, required sacrifice. That manufacturing for the war effort called for war bonds. It called for metal drives. It called for rubber drives. They told the American citizens to be wise and careful and frugal on fuel, electricity, and gas, and there was food rationing. Why? Because there was a cause. There's a war against the enemy. That mattered more. The American people had to set aside their rights for the greater cause. Winning and ending evil and liberating the captive and overturning the despots and the full support of the troops needed to happen. And friends, if we could do that for a physical war here in our country, could not Jesus Christ's church do that for the ultimate war? The real battle. The cosmic fight, the good fight, the guard of the faith, the cause of winning recruits, new soldiers, of making disciples, the demand to establish an army of boys and girls and men and women for Christ. Whenever you have a war and whenever you have a mission, you have two parts, don't you? That are supposed to be part of the same team. Same team, two parts. You have the senders and the sent. And Paul was their spiritual father. He had brought them the life-changing good news of new life in Christ. Paul had planted the vineyard in Corinth, but wasn't allowed to eat the grapes. Paul was a soldier fighting for their freedom, but they wouldn't pay for his expenses. Paul was their farmer caring for the herd, but they wouldn't share the milk and the meat. Paul was the ox working for their grain, but they wouldn't share the bread. Paul was the priest laboring in the temple of God in sacrifice, but they wouldn't give him a share of the offering. And the Corinthians are the senders, and Paul is the sent, but they are close fisted they are stingy, they are worldly, and they are unsupportive to the guy who was their spiritual father. They were not supporting Paul and gospel ministry wholeheartedly. In a certain sense, it was a hindrance to what could be accomplished because Paul had to limit his time to work a job by his leather craft in the marketplace. And we shake our heads and say, those dumb people. But I wonder this morning, are we all in? Is our first tendency to say no to supporting gospel ministry? Yeah, we're all frugal New Englanders. But is our first tendency to say no until we have to say yes? Or is it leaning into yes for gospel ministry until we have to say no? There is a difference there of attitude. Are we suspicious or operating out of fear in supporting God's great work or joy in the potential harvest? When we hear about opportunities, do we then focus on the negatives or the bad possibilities that could happen when opportunities for ministry arise? Or do we see it from God's perspective and God's mission and get excited about the possibilities and potential and what God can do Church, we must support gospel ministry wholeheartedly. Don't operate out of fear or selfishness or worry. Don't allow your preferences, your pet peeves to hamstring God's work. His kingdom is bigger than you and I. So operate in joy for the kingdom of Christ. Now notice what Paul is hinted about in verse 12. If others be partakers of this power over you or right over you, are not we rather nevertheless we have not used this power but suffer or endure all things lest we should hinder the gospel of christ paul does not want to hinder the gospel of christ you see in that day the greek cities were filled with all kinds of itinerant teachers and orators and preachers many of whom were out simply to make money and not only had paul refused to use that kind of oratory and those kinds of speeches and arguments that these teachers used. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. But he also refused to accept money from those to whom he ministered among this church because apparently it was an obstacle to them. He wanted the message of the gospel to be free from any obstacle or hindrances in the minds of lost sinners. And now the flow of the chapter will change from the case for Paul exercising his rights as a sent one in Christ an agent warrior who should be supported by the senders to now what helps him put perspective and hope and a motivation and a big picture in empowering him to then act as a servant and lay down his rights. So in verses 15 through 27, we have the case for why Paul set aside these rights. We see first of all, he gets to brag on Christ's supply in proclaiming the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, look in verse 15 and 16. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things that it should be so done to me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying, my bragging, my boasting, empty void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is to me if I preach not the gospel." Paul says, I never used any of these rights. And I'm not writing to suggest I'm going to do this now. He says, I'd rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. And he says, preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. He said, "It it would be terrible, it would be awful for me, pointless for me if I didn't preach the good news. And then he says it links him directly to God and strips away wrong motives he might have. Verse 17 and 18. For if I do this thing willingly, of my own choice, of my own business, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation or stewardship of the gospel is committed to me, what is my reward then? Truly, verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power or authority in the gospel. Paul says, if I were doing this on my own initiative here, um, perhaps I could charge, like a business. I would deserve payment. Paul says, I have no choice because God has given me this sacred trust. And he says, what is my pay? How does God pay me? Here's what, I, here's what my paycheck is. It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I don't demand my rights. Though I could, verses 1 through 14, but that's why I do not demand my rights when I preach the good news. Because no man would be able to accuse him of underhanded motives or methods as he shared the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, you're just doing it for money. The unsaved world is pretty convinced of that, isn't it? And most preachers and missionaries are just racketeers. They just want your money. They're just using things to exploit others and control them. In 1 Timothy 6, 3-16 talks about people who had done that. And there's been a wrong attitude about money from the very beginning of the church. Think of Ananias and Sapphira and Simon the magician. For 18 years, uh, Harry Ironside pastored the Moody Church in Chicago. And when he would announce an offering among the church, he said, we ask God's people to give generously. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ as you're here today, we do not ask you to give. We have a gift for you. Eternal life through faith in Christ. He wanted to make it clear that the offering was expected of God's people. Lest the unsaved in the congregation would stumble over money and reject the gospel. And then in verses 19-23, through Paul talks about the truth that he sets aside his rights here for the sake of connecting people to Christ. He says this, For though I be free from all men, I do not have this obligation. Paul says, Yet have I made myself servant to all, slave to all, that I might gain the more, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. Them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Then that are outside the law, without the law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men that, by, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partakers, fellowshippers, sharers thereof with you. What's Paul saying? He says, I am a free man with no master, but I'm willing to become a slave to all people for the sake of Christ. He said, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to win the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I lived under the law. And even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who don't follow Jewish law, I live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, in Romans, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I share their weakness. I want to bring the weak to Christ. He says, I try to find the common ground with everyone. I do what I can to save some. I do it to spread the good news and share its blessings. And we look at that and we might say, well, what kind of a compromiser are you, are you Paul? You sound like a politician who just wants to please his audience. you sound like a wind blowing a a weed blowing in the wind. you sound like a chameleon who just changes his colors. that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is absolutely firm on the gospel, but he is willing to find a point of contact to win people to Jesus. And so in verses 15 through 23, What Paul is saying is, if we were to support gospel ministry wholeheartedly in verses 1 through 14, then we are to serve in the gospel unreservedly. Serve in the gospel unreservedly. We think about the incarnation. God in Christ in the flesh who came to us. And then Jesus Christ ascended and he left us to be a display of Christ to others. This, brothers and sisters is the package that came with your salvation. This is the contract. This is the expectation for the followers of Jesus Christ. Cross-cultural missions across the street, across the world, and across, yes, the pews in this church. That's where it starts. Paul takes his rights and his comforts, and his preferences, and his ease of life. And Paul jumps on the altar of God in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he says, Lord, I am Your willing sacrifice. I lay down my comfort. I lay down my rights. I lay down my ease. I lay down my preferences for the sake of building Your kingdom. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ living in me by faith in Him. And Lord, now use me for Your kingdom. That's what Paul's saying in verses 15 through 23. Serve in the gospel unreservedly. Law professor and technology expert Tim Liu says there's an underestimated force that is driving our lives in this culture today, and it is the idea of convenience. We want nearly everything about our lives to be convenient, efficient, and easy. And he calls convenience, quote, the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economies. And he talks about Evan Williams, who was a co-founder of of Twitter, who said, convenience decides everything. And Tim Liu says, convenience seems to make our decisions for us, trumping what we like to imagine are our true preferences. For example, I prefer to brew my own coffee, but Starbucks is instantly convenient so i hardly do what i prefer i do what is easy but easy is better but easiest is best certainly there are benefits to some of life's conveniences that we enjoy today but there's also a dark side Wu says this and this is seeped into the church with its promise of smooth smooth effortless efficiency It threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. Created to free us, it can become a constraint on what we are willing to do, and thus, in a subtle way, convenience can enslave us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. Is that not a commentary on the Western church today? When Jesus came, he did not offer convenience in following him. He warned us to count the cost. And many times to do what is inconvenient in order to follow him. And that's what Paul understood. To serve in the gospel unreservedly. To build redemptive relationships for the sake of the kingdom of God. Verses 19-23. through Americans like to say things like, follow your passion, pursue your dreams, do what you love and love what you do. Research has questioned the results of that kind of thinking. Does it really lead to personal fulfillment and flourishing? Researchers from Stanford and Yale have found that following your passion is likely to lead to overly limited pursuits, inflated expectations, An early or eventual burnout. The study concluded, quote, people are often told to find their passions as though passions and interests are preformed and must simply be discovered. This idea, however, has hidden motivational implications. Urging people to find their passion might might lead them to put all their eggs in one basket, but then to drop that basket when it becomes too difficult to carry. Our culture tells us to look within. Like there's a fixed set of passions that are just embedded in there that we just got to find. But the truth is, David Brooks said, most successful people don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and find a need that summons their life. And friends, our young people are being caught by this lie. And I don't think it's just our young people. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to look to Christ and look to the world to find the need and give our lives to that need. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, as he ministered in China and began to have delays in communicating and delays in acceptance from the Chinese, began then to wear his hair long and braided like the Chinese men of that time period. And to put on their clothes and to eat their food and to sleep on a straw mat and many of the fellow missionaries derided him and were suspicious of him. But Hudson Taylor had thought very carefully through what was essential to the gospel and by implication then what was non-negotiable and what was a cultural form. What was negotiable. That was neither here nor there. And what might be an unnecessary barrier to the effective proclamation of the gospel. And God used him tremendously. He found the point of contact. He stood on the gospel. But he found the point of contact and gave up his preferences. Gave up his comforts. And he reached many Chinese for Jesus Christ. In this passage in verses 19 through 23 Paul is saying, Lord, help my upbringing not to interfere with the sake of the gospel. And so it is with Jesus Church today. I know we're used to certain things. I know our hearts beat and we're used to certain patterns and habits, Lord, but uh, but, but Lord, help my upbringing not to interfere. Help my traditions not to get in the way of the eternal work of Your kingdom. Help my opinions or my politics to be laid aside for the sake of the Gospel. Take my pet peeves, my scruples here, and place them beside the big picture of eternity and help me to love You and to love others more than myself. That's what drove Paul. That's what drove our Savior. Lord, make my liberty in Christ useful. Harness it for the sake of the gospel and build your kingdom by making disciples by your grace. Take my little preferences and my comfort zones and nail them to the cross because you are worthy, Lord, and your great work deserves the reward of the suffering of the Lamb. Lord, make me cross-centered to serve others. It's not about me. It's not about what I'm used to. It's not about what someone told me sometime. It's about Your Word. And it's about Your business of reconciliation. Connecting people with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father, and His church. So Lord, pick me up by my ankles. Turn me upside down. Shake me, Lord. See what comes out of my pockets and help me see what really matters. Whatever falls off, Lord, I don't need that. I need you. Sometimes our comfort zones need to be brought up and placed against the expanse of eternity and what will really matter a million years from now. Sometimes we're so far away from that mindset of eternity. It's like standing at a door where there's a little peephole. The farther you are away from that little peephole that lets you gaze into eternity, the smaller that little peephole in eternity will seem. But as you get closer to it and you put your eye to that peephole, Lord, help me to see what really matters and will last through the next world. God, burn off what doesn't count and forge out of that what really will last and matter and take away anything that's loose and not as important as building your kingdom so that I might, with Paul, can say that I might by all means save some. Let me see the purpose of your church. Let me have my part in it to reach the community and the people I know. Lord, I am your servant, your tool to use. Put my rights aside to impact my world. Take my petty hang-ups and move me past them with an eternal vision as an equipped missionary in this culture, in this region you've put me in. Help me to be more concerned as an ambassador for the eternal kingdom with my king's agenda rather than my opinion's. How many see Jesus' church built and help that become more important than anything else? And instead of expecting people to adjust to me, I adjust to them for the sake of the gospel and the building up of Jesus' bride for the glory of God. And this is returning to joy instead of selfishness. Instead of fear of change, Instead of comfort, this is where abiding peace and security come from. From casting myself into the good hands of the shepherd who cast himself for you. Away from what is easy. Away from what is comfortable. Away from being shaped only or simply by my background or upbringing and making Christ and what the Bible actually says my goal instead of what someone else has simply told me or my opinions. Help the Lord to be my thinking and my practice. Letting the Lord shape me for executing His vision for building up His church. So that, yeah, I can love a Democrat or a Republican. I can love all ethnicities. I can find a point of contact for a bridge of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. So, Paul will drive this point home of giving up his rights one more time with a hammer to show his laser like focus for Christ and building up his church is serious. And verses 24 through 27. Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receives the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In these four verses here, we see the third point. That in order to set ourselves aside, set our rights aside for the sake of the gospel, we need to see the gospel centered life's reward. Paul did not give, Paul did not have the right to give up his liberty in Christ, but he did have the liberty to give up his rights, Warren Wearsby said. And in these verses, Paul says, I had these rights in verses one through fourteen, and then in fifteen through twenty-seven here, I'm setting aside these rights, and I'm not speaking as someone who's being a hypocrite, but a living example of these principles I'm writing about. Remember the context in chapter eight: should not the stronger believers in the church be able to set aside their rights for the sake of the weaker saints? Was eating meat more important than building up the church? And so Paul will say in these verses, number one, you run to win an eternal prize. If you're going to lay aside your rights, you need to see the gospel-centered life's reward. You run to win an eternal prize. There is no point in entering a race unless you're going to win. Unless you're going all out to win. And Paul said, even in that day, in the Olympics, in the athletic events, when they win, they get a wreath that gets dust and turns brown and they throw it away someday. Paul says, we do it to obtain an incorruptible one. One that will not fade away. An eternal reward. And Paul has his sight set on eternity. He has his eyes up to the people in the door of eternity, and he says, "This is what motivates me. I see the gospel-centered life's reward. I live in the present as someone who will inherit that incorruptible new body, the joy that I'll receive in full in eternity and glorification when God makes the world new and this life is over. So you run to win an eternal prize, but you also win." By being a living sacrifice. By setting yourself aside for the sake of others. By agape love, we'll see in 1 Corinthians 13. C.S. Lewis said this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you my self my own will shall become yours how paul lived this out paul and even the rest of the corinthian letters we find his descriptions of his suffering he said we are afflicted in every way but not crushed in 2 corinthians 4 We're, uh, we we are perplexed but not driven to despair we are we are persecuted but not forsaken we are struck down but we are not destroyed In 2 Corinthians 6, he talks about afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watching and hunger and shipwrecks. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes lashes except one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been adrift at, at sea. And we might ask ourselves... What kind of self-control, what kind of discipline would go through four beatings of 39 lashes on the back for preaching Christ, and then continue preaching, knowing your next sermon might result in a fifth beating? And then perhaps another angle of not only his physical body, but also his mental state. Uh, Maybe you've never thought of this, but if Paul grew up in Jerusalem as a conservative Jew, a question might arise, where did he learn his Greek? Because Jerusalem was probably a city that spoke Aramaic and some have suggested that Paul decided as he was a Jewish missionary to the Gentiles that he would have invested an incredible amount of time in learning Greek you don't know this for certain we do know Aramaic and Hebrew would have been his native language And fluency in oral and written Greek, as we have in the New Testament letters, would have required great personal discipline. So all his life, in one way or another, Paul had to beat his body in order to cross cross, Cross-cultural lines to fulfill his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he warns his readers that the task of being all things to all people, finding that point of contact with others that may be uncomfortable, takes enormous energy and discipline. Cross-cultural mission, incarnating the life of Jesus Christ to others, takes tremendous pummeling. Paul pummeled his body, he pummeled his mind, because the sake of the gospel was so heavy as it stood in the beauty of the expanse of eternity. Oh, how different that is for us, isn't it, in many ways. As I said, we're so used to comforts, we're so used to conveniences, we're so used to what is easiest, and at your local Starbucks you have lots of options here, and According to Starbucks' global chief marketing officer, the company offers more than 80,000 drink combinations. We are so customized, uh, we're so used to the hyper-customization of, of, of our world here. What would happen if one day you went into Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts and they came out and they said, you know, this whole thing's gotten out of control. Uh, from now on, you'll be able to order just regular and decaf at all our locations. How long would they stay in business? Sure. They'd be focused, but they lose a lot of people. I wonder how many people would stick around in Jesus' church if we got back to what really mattered. We got back to the regular. Winning in God's design is narrowing down the distractions, prioritizing and focusing on what really matters for the sake of the gospel, that I might by all means save some. And then Paul makes it clear here that we see the reward of the gospel-centered life by that winning by doing what God has saved you to do. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul says in verse 26, I run not as uncertainly or without aim or without goals, so fight I not as one that beats the air. See, the gospel will demand, being a disciple of Jesus Christ will demand that you give up your rights and freedoms. This is going to feel like going into hard athletic training. And Paul doesn't want himself to end up, he doesn't want his churches like Corinth to end up like people in a boxing ring or just simply waving their arms around. Far too much Christianity is like that today. And Paul saw the danger that people were making a lot of fuss about some things, but doing none of the hard and demanding work that would actually advance the gospel in their own lives and the world. The famous Olympic athlete and Native American, Jim Thorpe, was no stranger to adversity. He grew up in the early 1900s as a Native American and experiences fair share of mockery and racism and prejudice at the age of nine his twin brother died within a few years both of his parents also died and jim was an orphan but he had an incredible special talent an athletic ability really unparalleled he was one of the first players to ever play professional baseball and football and in 1913, Thorpe signed with the New York Giants and he played six seasons in Major League Baseball between 1913 and 1919. In 1915, he joined the Canton Bulldogs the American football team and helped them win three professional championships. He later played for six football teams in the National Football League. He played as part of several All-American Indian teams throughout his career. From 1920 to 21, he became the first president of the American Professional Football Association, which became the NFL in 1922. But in the midst of all his accomplishments, perhaps his greatest was two gold medals in the 1912 Summer Olympic Games in Stockholm, Sweden. Shortly before he was going to start in the pentathlon, someone stole his shoes. And instead of giving up, Jim went to the trash can And he found two shoes of two styles. I have a picture of it. One was an athletic shoe and the other was a loafer. And each shoe was a different size. And he compensated for the different size by wearing an extra sock and the one that was bigger. Because he was determined to run the race that he had been asked to run. He persevered. He was resolved to finish the race. He was determined to run the race that was set before him with no excuses. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul had one great goal in life. To glorify the Lord by winning the lost and building up the saints. And to reach this goal, He was willing to pay any price. He was willing to give up His personal comforts, His personal rights. He would sacrifice immediate gains for eternal rewards, immediate pleasures for eternal joys. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to live for the sake of the Gospel, we must see the reward of the Gospel-centered life. I hear that we want and we pray for our young people to live for Christ on the mission field, live lives sold out for God in every area. But dear brothers and sisters, could it be any wonder that there are so few willing to live cross-culturally and those who do many times last just for a short time or are ineffective as they are unwilling to bend or live like the people they're called to minister to or have an air of superiority to them, to the people they have to minister to? When what they may have seen modeled is a brittleness and a death grip on things that aren't ultimately important or are perhaps a model of criticism or selfishness or comfort driven living. An unflexibility to live, to love each other in and outside the church. An extremely narrow view of what the Christian life is and looks like that many times is so different from what the Bible says. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not so to be. And we will be effective in cross-cultural missions and setting ourselves aside for the sake of the Gospel when we begin by doing this for one another. God's church is a laboratory for global missions. When God's church learns 1 Corinthians love, when it learns 1 Corinthians 9 principles for setting aside our preferences for what really matters, it enhances the church's mission to reach the lost. Paul had all kinds of opportunities to exercise rights. Paul set aside those rights that he might by all means save some Because Paul set his eyes on the reward of the gospel-centered life. And so may it be with us. Lord, help us. Amen.